podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, a knowledge development lawyer in our commercial real estate team, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Catherine Eakers, who's a partner in the commercial real estate team, and alongside Catherine is Matt Evans, who's a senior associate in our planning team. Welcome. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. Thank Matt, you very much. Good how to are join we? You. Good, thank you. Um, So today we're going to talk through a redevelopment scenario and discuss some of the common issues which we see crop up and how we might address them. Um, So I'm just going to give you guys a scenario just off the top of my head without any prior preparation. Uh, Let's say I've recently acquired a tired mixed-use retail office building in London. Unsurprisingly, my retail tenant has gone bust, so they're out of there. Um, And while some of the office space is vacant, there's a couple of standing tenants left. Um, So I'm thinking what I might do is convert to predominantly residential use and even try and add a couple of extra floors on top of the building um, to maximise my return. So turning to you, Catherine, first, in terms of the existing tenants, what sort of things should I be thinking about? Shall we talk firstly about sort of overall strategy for trying to get vacant possession? Absolutely. Well, first things first, when do the leases actually come to an end? Um, do they all expire in the next year or two? Or in fact, have you got someone in there who's got a right to stay for the next 20 years? You can always negotiate with a tenant for them to leave a building earlier than their lease expiry. Um, but they may not want to go and that is at their discretion. So they can choose to stay. If a tenant has a term for 10 years remaining, they can choose to stay. If they do agree to go, they'd be likely to ask you for some financial compensation in return for giving up their rights to be in the building. You may, however, strike lucky, you never know, and find a tenant who actually wants to leave the building too and who's delighted to agree an early surrender with you in return for being released from their future liabilities under the lease to pay rent and other costs. Um, bearing in mind that tenants at the end of a lease term will often have quite a significant dilapidations liability, which is the cost of putting the building back in repair and decorated at the end of the term. So some tenants would be very happy to... Um, be released from from those liabilities and to pay rent as well. So what if the tenants won't play ball and they actually want to stay in the building? Do I just need to sort of wait it out until the expiry of their lease terms? Yes, unfortunately so. I mean, obviously, if a tenant starts off by saying, no, I have no interest in leaving, the conversation doesn't have to stop there. Um, It's important to understand as much as you can about their business, what motivates them, um, just like in any commercial negotiation. So the first no in the conversation may not be the end of it. Um, You may be able to come to a sum that the tenants will like to accept in return for giving up their lease. Um, Or you may have something else to offer them. Uh, If you have a building nearby, you may be able to relocate them. Um, You may know people who have buildings nearby. So do think outside the box um, in having those sorts of conversations. But ultimately, if a tenant has a 10-year lease term, they do have a right to be there for 10 years unless they're willing to give up. That's right. But no longer than 10 years. So once we get to the end of the term, that's the drop-dead date and they have to get out. Well, I'd love to say yes, but that's not necessarily the case, I'm afraid. I know that sounds a bit crazy, but business tenants can have a right to stay in the premises after the end of their lease term. That's known as security of tenure under the uh, Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. Um, It depends on whether or not the lease is within the protection of that act. And that's something that um, depends on what the lease says and a solicitor can very quickly tell you yes or no from looking at that lease. But tenants who do have a right to renew um, have just that. They've got a right to be granted a new lease um, 
unless certain conditions can be satisfied by the landlord. One of those conditions is redevelopment. So a landlord can oppose um, the grant of a new lease on the grounds of redevelopment, but the burden of proving that they do genuinely intend to redevelop is on the landlord. If the tenant puts them to proof of that, then the landlord would need to have absolutely everything lined up to demonstrate to a court, ultimately, that they are really intending to redevelop and actually are able to do so. So does that mean you need to have planning permission? Basically, yes. Um, It's not an absolute prerequisite, but it would significantly help your case if you do. Um, The point at which a landlord will need to demonstrate that intention to redevelop is at the end of what can be quite a long court process. The process begins with the landlord serving a notice on the tenant, um, which can be done up to 12 months before the end of the lease term, saying that they don't intend to grant the tenant a new lease and they're opposing any intention on the part of the tenant to, re- to, to renew on the grounds of redevelopment. The tenant may choose to accept that notice and leave at the end of the lease term or the notice period specified in the notice. Um, but if they choose to fight it, then it could take another 12 or 18 months after the end of the lease term to get to the court hearing. And it's at that court hearing that the landlord will need to demonstrate its intention. So at that point, a landlord would ideally have in place a planning consent or if they don't have a planning consent, at least to submit an application and be able to persuade the court that there are no real reasons why they wouldn't get that consent granted. They would also need to show that they can financially afford to carry out the redevelopment, so they either have the cash or they've secured bank funding to enable them to do so. They would probably have lined up a building contractor um, and other professionals so that they can show really show the court that they are absolutely ready to start work and that the only thing holding them up is the existence of this tenant. So you need to think quite carefully about sort of um, timing for service of proceedings if that's really that you need to go down yes definitely and there can actually be a real advantage as well in getting those sorts of steps planning etc lined up at an early stage and then showing the tenant that you do have all your ducks in a row because that might persuade them not to bother fighting the court process um, if they know that they're going to lose it because they'll have to fund their legal costs in doing so um, and so a sensible tenant may well accept there's no realistic prospects of their succeeding and choose to leave earlier if you present them with a strong case from the beginning, particularly if you potentially offer them a little bit of money as well. Um, It is also worth bearing in mind that you will need to pay tenants statutory compensation in return for them losing their right to renew the lease. That's something that's provided for in the Landlord and Tenant Act, and depending on how long a tenant's been in the building, um, or including its predecessors in running the same business, you'll either have to pay them once or twice the rateable value of their premises. And so what you might do is try and use that amount as a guide for what you might offer the tenant um, to agree an early surrender. Yeah, definitely. That would be your starting point. Um, and you can also then factor in the legal costs the tenant would have to incur in fighting the court process. You could also bear in mind that you may be able to keep allow the tenant to stay in the premises for a period of months whilst you sort out things like planning pre-commencement conditions and lining up your building contractor so you might actually be able to give the tenant an extra six months in the building in return for them giving up their rights to renew uh, you could put them on a at least it doesn't have the benefit of those rights but enabling them to stay in the building for a bit longer and so that's a way of kind of ensuring that you've got an interim income stream so what sort of arrangement what would that kind of arrangement look like 
They can be really flexible, and that's something that we would definitely recommend the landlord does if it possibly can, because the costs of having a building empty are can be quite significant, um, particularly bearing in mind sort of void, void rates, liability can be quite significant. Yeah. Um, and so you can put in place short-term leases that have rolling landlord rights to break, rights to end the term, on anywhere from one month to six months notice is what you would typically see um the tenants are likely to want a lower rent in return for agreeing that flexibility for the landlord but any rent is better than no income at all um and so long as the landlord ensures that those leases are outside of the protection of the landlord and tenant act so the tenants don't have any right to stay in the units they have complete security they can get the tenants out by serving those notices whenever they want to Okay, so moving on to the planning process, Matt, you've been super quiet so far. Well, it makes a change. <laughs> what do we need to think about from a strategic point of view? Um, I suppose the first thing to think about really is before you even start, so we get the application in, is, is the, the, the pre-application engagement process. And, and there's, there's two limbs to that really, or two elements. There's a, a, a formal pre-application that you can go in to see the council about probably further down the line, closer to submission, where you've got a, a pretty good idea about what you want to build. Um, and you talk to them about uh, what's going to come forward. They give you a, an informal officer's opinion, non-binding, um, and which is it can be a useful steer for you to make changes to the scheme, particularly if it's a bit controversial, particularly the elements that you know you're, you're pushing the boundary. Height, for example, is always one that, that gets gets knocked back a bit. And at the end of that, you should be left with something that, is or gives you a nice steer on what will be acceptable once it's submitted. Uh, I suppose alongside that is a, is a more of a, 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 a an engagement process that the government is trying to encourage uh, developers to, to take on, which is let's publicise what you're going to do in the local area. Let's get out there and get informal uh, consultation uh, processes, billboards, consultation exercises, meetings with locals, and not local people to local businesses, everybody, um, and and really push what you're going to do and, and, and kind of try and invite that engagement. Um, but presumably that can be both sort of advantageous and, and come with its drawbacks as oh, well. Completely. I mean, it can be utterly petrifying to invite that sort of criticism of something that you spent and you will have spent quite a long time and a lot of money on putting together by this point. So to, to invite the public in and potentially rip it to pieces can be quite daunting. But you know, actually it can bring some really positive benefits so you might uncover people who have a, a, an interest in the land or a right o- over the land that you were completely unaware of um, so all of a sudden you, you're left oh, rather than halfway through the planning process and you've got a ransom strip that gets flushed out early on you can make changes before it gets submitted yeah which is you know, hugely helpful equally um, you can start identifying and mitigating uh, or addressing um, potential planning issues. So are there noise problems? Is this going to be an access issue? Do you need to start stopping up things, areas of the highway? So from that perspective, it can be quite good to get those flushed out early. I suppose the, ad- the adverse element to it is if that goes on too long, um, you really are giving local residents time to mobilise and, and get their house in order and really start proposing development. You know, for example, when I was at local authority, there was a, a scheme up the road that had... 
two or three years worth of engagement because the scheme evolved and by the end of it the locals had a, a public campaign they'd raised a lot of money uh, and there was such a, a ground swell of opposition that um, it found it, the, the authority put, were put under serious pressure to, to refuse the application but you know, ultimately it needs to be commensurate to the sort of development that you're going to bring forward yeah and then once you're at once you've kind of gone through that process and you're at the stage that you um are sort of capable of putting an application in what kind of timing are we looking for and what is the application going to be assessed against in terms of timing, I mean, this, this feels like it could be a major application. A major application is, is a number of criteria, one of which is um, 10 dwelling houses or more. Um, unfortunately, and that, that, the, the time frame for determining that application is, or the statutory time frame at least, is, is 13 weeks. Um, a minor application, which remarkably helpfully is defined as anything that's not a major, is eight <laughs> weeks. Um, but I don't think we'd fall into that, given the, the location and what we're looking at. Um, Realistically, uh, those time frames are are a number. Um, in theory, every local authority should look to determine those applications within that time frame. Uh, but very often, very rarely, they are because uh, of various for various reasons: uh, complexity, offices aren't available, yeah. just, uh, local resources being stretched. So, what does happen is that these timetables get extended through agreement with the developer, um, and often, it, even when you get to a stage where it is agreed. The local authority won't want to be penalised for determining an application known as out of time. So uh, you'll be you'll be held over a barrel until you sign that extension. So uh, I guess the message is really, it says thirteen weeks on the tin, but uh, don't don't uh, bank on that. Okay. And then, what sort of um, criteria will the local authority be looking at in terms of assessing your application? Well, every planning application should be determined in line with the. The development plan unless material considerations say otherwise so uh, we're talking about in the London here so the development plan will be the, the, the local authority's own plan um, which will contain a variety of policies uh, to do with uh, education affordable housing highways access all of that kind of thing um, everything that the development in theory will impact um, and they will have to reach a conclusion about whether this development in particular is in accordance with it or not. Um, the other elements to the development plan in, in London is the London plan, um, which contains a series of uh, not quite so local policies, but um, more strategic London-wide policies. But right. ultimately, you still have to be in general conformity with that, or that's the idea. Um, as you would expect for such an, a plan or a document that covers such a wide area, they're not prescriptive or not terribly prescriptive because you could not possibly write a document that, that is, suits or, or shapes every single development that would ever possibly come forward. So are there particular parts of the London plan that you could pick out that you think are particularly relevant to this scenario? Though? Well, certainly uh, affordable housing, um, particularly if we're going into the realms of 10 units or more or 10 homes or more, because that's when the general threshold in, in London for, for the provision of on-site affordable and certainly the London plan at the moment, the, the, the current administration seems to want to have a, an emphasis on rather than huge scale sites. They still have some of those identified as part of the plan, but there seems to be a particular emphasis on small sites delivering a lot more of the affordable. That's coming for a, an amount of criticism, but um, and probably rightly so in some quarters, but um, that's something that you'd have to look at quite closely. Um, in terms of perhaps not so much in this instance, but you never know, um, strategic and industrial land. There's uh, 
it's a big issue for a lot of our clients at the moment where perhaps in the previous iterations they banked on buying up this type of land and, and being able to bring it forward for, for residential development because of its location. Um, but they seem that the current administration want to protect that a lot more. So uh, getting a release from that designation is, is, is proving harder than it probably used to be. But one issue to consider here, perhaps not the formal application route, is because it's a former, former office block, you've got the option of permitted development rights. Okay. Um, which have been in existence for quite a while now. But that office, the dwelling house um, option, um, can give you... I suppose, the opportunity to establish a residential use on that site without having to go through a formal planning application process. And there's quite a few areas in London that have got exemptions from Yes, that. yeah, and that's, that, well, I think that, that's a, it's a, a very relevant point for certainly inner London, um, largely on the basis that the, so much commercial space or the concern was so much commercial space was going to be lost to this because at the time... The, the value of residential, and certainly probably still is today, the value of residential in those areas is so much higher. Um, there was going to be a drain of, of office and, well, fundamentally employment floor space. Yeah. So what what's, what's known as an Article 4 exemptions, the, the, which is a, um, a method that councils can do, use to remove permitted development rights, uh, that was attempted initially, and then the government, I think, appreciated it, uh, the, the problem, and actually removed vast swathes of land formally as part of the legislation but they're now coming back with with increased levels of of, of exemptions in, in specific areas for boroughs because okay. of this problem yeah um i think the advantage of it from in this scenario perhaps is that it's it's faster um you've got 56 or the council have got 56 days to, to come back to you to say yay or nay um there's limited grounds for actually objecting to it so transport, contamination, flood risk, noise impacts, quite limited. Yeah. And, and affordable housing isn't on that list. So you can have a fairly large office block that comes forward with no, no requirement for affordable housing or contribution or otherwise. So it can be... So a useful right if you can utilise it. If it's available to you, yeah. yes. And certainly in this scenario, it's certainly the first thing that jumps out at you is, is can, you, can you make use of this? Yeah. Um, I think perhaps the, the the final thing to do to think about is the is the mitigating mitigation of impacts of the development, be it by Section One Hundred Six Agreement um, and SIL, which is Community Infrastructure Levy, which is the bane of most of our lives. It's incredibly <laughs> incredibly complicated. Um, all I can say is, it's, it's essentially a tax on new floor space, uh, and I would highly encourage people to get specialist advice on it because it is not straightforward. Uh, and it crystallises on commencement of development. So if you if you don't do that and you don't understand your position and then you stick a spade in the ground, it can be very hard to, to roll to, to roll back from that. Yeah. Particularly if you're relying on exemptions, if you've got affordable housing or things like that. And again, in London, there's two types of two sill. levels. Yes. Yeah. So all boroughs in inner London have their own sill charging schedule, which sets out not only for specific use classes. Um, also for specific areas. So, for example, Islington have a very high student accommodation tariff, effectively, because they don't want any more student accommodation. Right. So it's not, I can't use the word penalty, but that's effectively what it is, to divert that type of use away from the borough. Um, but So that it's not a little bit more complicated than just a flat tax, but uh, the mayoral seal, which is uh, collected, by the, or collected by the boroughs for the GLA, that is a borough-wide, each borough has its own uh, flat tax 
that um, is then collected and say diverted to the GLA. Okay. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there for now as we run out of time. However, you can tune in for part two, in which we're going to discuss some other common difficulties due to the location of the site, um, Catherine's favourite topic, rights of light, other third-party rights, and we'll be summarising our key takeaways on the subject of urban development schemes. So please do join us then. In the meantime... Uh, you can head over to our website forsters.co.uk for the latest news and views from the firm you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or you can subscribe to the Law and Law podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes and until next time goodbye Forster's Law and Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequence from loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than All podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.